Uh-oh, that's the foghorn. It must mean it's time for the Cavish Ships podcast. Our effort to cut through the murk and mist and shine some light on what's going on this week in the naval and maritime world. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up later in the show, U.S. Navy leaders in Washington began to defend the fiscal 22 budget on Capitol Hill as the annual round of Senate and House hearings begin. So far, the people in the big chairs are not at all happy with what they're hearing. And the Navy's 30-year shipbuilding plan was finally sent to Congress this week without much of a plan and certainly with no 30 years in it. We'll discuss. And there's talk of creating some sort of international naval task force to patrol the South China Sea. But is that really needed or even a good idea? We'll talk about it. But first, a look at naval developments around the world. In the Pacific, the Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group and USS America Amphibious Ready Group are operating in the South China Sea, where they're expected to be joined soon by littoral combat ships Tulsa and Charleston. The Reagan and America groups are both based in Japan and regularly cruise the Western Pacific. The moves seem to be agitating China, which on June 15th, the day after the Reagan entered the South China Sea, sent a record-breaking number of warplanes in the air surrounding Taiwan, breaching the country's air defense identification zone and flying around the island nation. At least one semi-government-sponsored analyst quoted in People's Daily Online said the air actions could be seen as a response to the naval movements. Also in the Pacific, the Carl Vincent Carrier Strike Group is in Hawaiian waters about to begin her deployment with Carrier Air Wing 2. Over in Europe, three NATO warships are operating in the Black Sea this week. The U.S. destroyer Laboon passed by Istanbul and through the Bosphorus to enter the Inland Sea on June 11th, and the British destroyer Defender and Dutch frigate Evertsen followed on June 14th. All three were operating together by the 17th. They're expected to spend the weekend visiting Odessa, Ukraine. Coincidentally, the moves to enter the sea took place during the Biden-Putin summit meeting in Geneva. Also, the Iranian Navy gained two new home-built ships on June 14th with the commissioning of the light frigate Dina and steel minesweeper Shaheen at the Bandar Abbas naval base. Dina is the fourth Moj-class light frigate built in Iran, while Shaheen is a first-of-class minesweeper. Meanwhile, the two Iranian ships reportedly headed for Venezuela may have altered course. Politico reported June 17th the sea-based ship Macron and frigate Sahan are moving up the Atlantic coast of Africa and may enter the Mediterranean. A U.S. official said the course change indicates, could indicate anyway, a diplomatic campaign urging Western Hemisphere governments to turn away those ships may have been successful, Politico reported. On the Mediterranean coast, the Israeli Navy received its second Sahar 6 Corvette named Oz. The Sahar 6s at 1,900 tons are the largest Israeli warship in some years and are built by Thessenkrupp Marine Systems in Kiel, Germany. Imagine the first Sahar 6 was delivered in October with two more to follow. Also in Europe, Italy's Fincantieri shipbuilders scored a major success June 10th when the company signed a deal with Indonesia to provide six Frem frigates to the Indonesian Navy and refit two ex-Italian Navy Mastrel-class frigates for the South Asian country. The Italian Frem is now one of the world's most popular frigate designs with 10 in service or building for Italy and two in service with Egypt. 
The design is also the basis for the U.S. Navy's Constellation class frigate under construction by Fincantieri's U.S.-based subsidiary. In the Persian Gulf, the careers of two small but hardworking U.S. Coast Guard cutters have finally concluded. The ADAC and Aquidneck were sent out in early 2003 as part of the buildup for Operation Iraqi Freedom, but along with four sister ships, they've formed the core of the Coast Guard's patrol forces Southwest Asia for over 18 years. Now replaced by newer ships, they were decommissioned at Bahrain on June 15th and have been approved for transfer to Indonesia. Equidneck and ADAC were commissioned in 1986 and 1989 as 110-foot island-class cutters initially intended to serve only 12 to 15 years, yet each of them was in service over 30 years. Along with most of the 110-footers, they represent one of the best military shipbuilding bargains the U.S. government has ever produced. Work is moving ahead to create a new light amphibious warship, or law, for the Marine Corps. USNI News reported that NAVC, the Naval Sea Systems Command, awarded concept design studies to five companies vying to build the ships. Austell USA, Think and Terry Marinette Marine, BT Halter Marine, Bollinger, and TAI Engineers. The contracts average out to $1.5 million per company. The Navy and Marine Corps plan to choose one design and award a construction contract for the first ship in 2023. The law would be a relatively small or medium-sized ship able to carry up to 75 Marines and beach itself on shore. It is part of the Marines' expeditionary advanced base operations concept. Meanwhile, up at Marinette, Wisconsin, a killing ceremony was held for the future USS Cleveland, LCS-31, the last Freedom Class littoral combat ship that will be built by Lockheed Martin. And on Friday afternoon, the shock trials for the aircraft carrier Gerald R. Ford began with the first of a series of, of uh, three planned explosions taking place off the coast of Florida, about 100 miles or so off the uh, northeast coast of Florida. The explosion itself registered 3.9 on the Richter scale. And that's a quick roundup of worldwide naval news. In Washington, Congress has, as we said, Congress has begun hearings on the, the FY22 defense budget. It's pretty clear no one is happy with it, from not enough ships to questioning of the allocation of resources, and even questioning and going after the suggested reading list put out by the Chief of Naval Operations. So Chris, how's it going for the Navy so far? I don't think it's going very well, um, but I don't know, you, you know, I don't know what the consequences are uh, of them not being able to answer the questions uh, from lawmakers. You know, in many cases, it seems like the lawmakers are greater advocates for sea power and uh, maritime security than the Navy leadership. It was clear prior to this uh, in the budget rollout, but certainly made crystal clear by the, the testimony of the CNO and the acting secretary and others who were up on the Hill this week, that there is not a larger story or larger narrative that all this fits into. There are some people that would chalk that up to the fact that, you know, this was a budget that is, some of it is a holdover from the Trump administration. Some of it is uh, a, whole, uh, a holdover from even administrations that, you know, go beyond Trump or, or go back beyond Trump. And, and, and some of it is, is part of the new Biden team's thinking. And so therefore, uh, the uniform leadership and, and the acting political leadership uh, may be lukewarm on the concepts that are in there. Unless the CNO and, and Admiral Kilby and others that were up there were really cornered and pressed, 
um, they didn't really show a ton of emotion. They didn't really seem to be able to connect the dots the way that you would expect a service secretary acting or not, and uh, a chief of service to be able to defend uh, and lay out a plan uh, for the budget. And uh, that certainly wasn't made any better when that 30-year shipbuilding plan uh, came out, um, which I'm sure you have some thoughts on. Well, it's hard to have too many thoughts on it because there's not a whole lot in the plan. Um, people were anxious to see it. This, of course, is a, usually these have lots of numbers in them and you're it's a, these are tables that look out 30 years in advance about both the expected shipbuilding levels, how many ships they would build a year, what kind of ships they'd be building a year, and then what the size of the fleet would be year to year to year to year to year. The Trump administration did not submit uh, their 30-year plan last year with the budget submission, and um, Secretary Esper, then Defense Secretary Esper, uh, bottled it up all year with wanting to review and review and review. He, he left early. And then uh, before the end of the administration, before the end of the year, they sort of like threw it out the door. Here, take it. And uh, it's hard to take it very seriously because it seems like it was just very political. It was also full of uh, a lot of landmines for the incoming administration to, to, to fall over. Um, so people were looking for maybe a more realistic 30-year uh, plan, just something. Uh, and of course, the Bidens delayed and delayed and delayed in, in, in submitting the budget and the plan. And yet there's nothing there. There's no, they're punting until next year. Um, there's no future year defense plan, which is the next five years that's normally included with all the, with every budget. Um, so you can't, nothing in the current budget has any context. You have no idea what their thinking is and what their plan is. You can't tell what their strategy is. What are you building for? Um, they have lots of rhetoric, but there's very little in these budgets that seems to support the rhetoric. There's some things in there. There's a lot more R&D money in there. Um, but in terms of you know weapons buying and acquisition buying and buying ships and planes, um, there's not a whole lot in there at all. And it's all by their own admission. They, they freely admit this isn't going to get the job done. And yet this is what you submit. And all the talk you hear about the early, the you know, very early stages of planning for, for the next budget, because it's, it is, you know, the middle of June, it is well into the planning season for the next budget. Everybody's saying it's going to be even worse, all the, all the cuts. And you wonder what they're, what, what are they driving for? They, on the one hand, they talk about a sense of urgency. A constant theme you heard during the, during the hearings this week was, when do you think conflict will take place? So before he left office recently, the former um, Admiral Phil Davidson, who was uh, commander of Pacific Command, in the Pacific Command, uh, testified and said he, he thought it was quite likely that a conflict with China could take place within six years. Uh, that that was that was his window, and uh, that came up repeatedly of, of people, of Congress people asking the leaders, "When do you think something would happen? Do you think that's realistic?" Some of them said yes. Some of them were pretty benign about it. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said no. You know, he thought that was uh, that, that 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 was uh, I forget I forget the term he used. 
but it, it said it wasn't. It was. He didn't think it was. It was happening, and yet you have so many others saying we have to be prepared now. We're not prepared to fight now at all, and to meet any real challenge. And this idea of of decommissioning ships, taking ships, whatever their problems, out of service now to reinvest into the future when you can't even show us what the future looks like. And as we all know, the future, you know, it never really comes. You know, you, you invest in a new program that, that you know, never quite meets up to its uh, promise, never is never going to be there when you say it's going to be there. So, you know, these things, you're, you're, you're giving away capabilities that you have today for capabilities you're absolutely not going to have for many, many years. And they're doing a terrible job justifying that right now. Oh, they really are doing a terrible job. I was just reading the quote uh, from uh, Representative Elaine Luria, uh, who told the right. CNO, I understand you were given a pretty shitty top line by the administration and specifically the Pentagon. You didn't have a lot of good choices, but you did have choices. And so I was looking at the words you used and you said that this budget is going to divest to invest, she said. So what's the strategy you're using? And I looked back over the last 20 years of budgets and saw that that was a very familiar term, especially in the 2004 budget where the Navy used the same divest to invest strategy. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's that it's that storyline of divest to invest that one is a it's hard for people to uh, to wrap their minds around. Um, I mean, geez, I'm not even sure a, a clever public affairs officer would be, uh, you know, sporty enough to come up with that that type of jargon. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it certainly doesn't make sense to the folks on the Hill. It doesn't seem to make sense to navalists. And I can't imagine that it makes sense to too many people in the Pentagon. So hopefully this divest to invest uh, over the next year will, with the help of Congress and with um, the help of maybe a little bit clearer thinking um, spurred on by the third deck uh, uh, at DOD, um, we'll get to something that at least is explained um, in greater clarity uh, and, and, and provides the answers that we're looking for. You know, just, just to be fair to uh, Congressman Luria, uh, Congresswoman Woman Luria, uh, the, the pretty shitty line was a slip of the tongue. She didn't mean it to say it that way. But, um, but I, on the I, other I, hand, I, I, I served two, uh, two years on board U.S. Harry S. Truman uh, with Elaine Luria, then Lieutenant Elaine oh. Luria. She was being pretty polite. So she's a sailor and uh, saying shitty is okay by me. This is the problem. Sailors, uh, even even I, I hate to admit it, but uh, journalists and TV people alike uh, <laughs> tend, tend to let, let, let it slip every now and then. Um, actually, we call them technical terms, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> Um, no, no, I mean, there, it's, it's, it's not a good theme. You know, if we're, we're throwing away things we've already paid for to reinvest into something that we, we have a low probability of seeing within the time that anybody here is still going to be on the clock. You know, none of these people in uniform are going to be around when these programs are coming in. This CNO is not. The, uh, none of the Pentagon leadership is, is going to be around. Uh, the, they won't be around to see the frigate. And the frigate is not going to be here in any numbers to make any difference until the 30s, mid-30s. And so, you know, you know, why are you giving things up? And I I know that uh, a lot of people want to throw away the LCS. If the, if the LCS isn't working in, in the concept that it's working, if it has some, has, if, if there are technical issues, 
well, fix it. It's, it, it's a platform that exists adapted to some other use. I don't know why we have to buy laws, light amphibious warfare ships, that seem to fit no established doctrine. There's new doctrine that, that envisions using them, but it hasn't been canonized. It's not clear that this is going to outlive the current Marine Corps leadership. And the ships, that's a small asset that uh, has no, uh, it doesn't, it, I'm not sure what this does. It carries 75 Marines and stays at sea for a month. Well, great, that's cool. Um, I have to protect it. I have to tie down other assets. I have to tie down aircraft, ships to protect this thing that probably would be do, doing something else. Um, if you want to put out assets ashore, come up with some other system. You could actually adapt the LCSs to, they have great carrying capability, immense carrying capability. That's what they were built for. That's, the, that's what I'd love to see. I'd love to see you, you know, okay, fine. If you want to spend, you know, 1.5 million per shipyard to do some studying. Okay. Um, but in the meantime, put 50 to 75 Marines on, especially the hostile variant uh, of the LCS, and let's start to test this. Let's start to learn so that it's not just somebody's good idea. It's not PowerPoint deep, a la what the LCS was when it first started, um, and that we have a little bit more rigor associated with it. And, and you may find out, to your point, that, that you don't need that, that new ship. Maybe you just need some ship bolts, or maybe you just need some connectors that, that would help what we already have become more um, effective, and you wouldn't have to build a new ship class. In the late 30s, they adapted, the, the U.S. Navy adapted a destroyer design, actually four Piper destroyers, World War I destroyers to a new concept called uh, fast transports. And you, you took out actually half the machinery, uh, half, the, half the boilers created a big space inside, birthing area for Marines. You had, had Marine raiding teams and uh, took off the torpedo tubes, put davits on, you could carry four landing craft. Now you had a ship that was doing 20 some odd knots, that was small, it was hard, it could get into, into places. They used them in the uh, North Africa campaign in 1942. They were very successful. They started converting a, quite a number of destroyer escorts into these fast destroyer transports. And they were exceptionally useful ships, uh, not just in World War II, but we kept a number of them in commission throughout the 50s and the 60s. Every, a lot of them were, were very popular uh, foreign transfers. But that was an adaptive design. You took something that wasn't intended to do that at all. You found a need for it. And you made it work. Uh, you wonder why you can't do something like that today. If, if your LCS concept isn't working, if you're so frustrated with it, if your plan that you, you've you not been able to execute the plan you had for 15 years, I'm not sure why you're still trying to execute that plan anymore. But don't throw them away and start with something else that isn't going to be here for another 15 years. What can you do to adapt those existing platforms? And they don't talk about that. I, I for one, just find that intensely frustrating. The same thing with the uh, these Mark VI patrol boats right. that they've already um, paid for. Uh, they're effective little boats. They're only about three years old. Um, it fulfills a, a role that nothing else does can carry out that mission. And um, now you just want to toss them away because, oh, they cost too much to maintain. They do exactly what you wanted them to do. They're no, they're, they're, they're no more expensive and no less expensive than what you knew going in. 
So that this is just an excuse. And the money they're saving is peanuts. Even the LCS, by decommissioning an LCS this year, you're saving 30 to 35 million a ship. Whoa, jump back, Jack. We're going to buy a whole mess of new stuff with that. One of these law ships that I don't know what they're supposed to do is probably going to cost about 150 million. To do what? And I, it's, it just it just boggles the mind. And there's no strategy. They don't have a there there. They can't tell Congress, a number of congressmen on both from both parties, keep trying to get them to say, what do you guys do? Why should what why should we invest in the Navy? They're throwing them these softballs. And the Navy pretty much whiffs at most of it. Once and in a while they get they get that's something. the hard part is I mean hey, look, I get it. You want to try new things. You want to begin, whether it's the Navy or the entire Naval Service, you, you know, with the partners of the Marine Corps, you want to move to new concepts. Let, let's do that. But let's let's test and move incre incrementally. And let's have a good story and a good concept that you can tie all this to. And to your point right now, we just don't. No, we don't. And I just I'm I'm so not interested in reinvesting in new platforms that you can't even show me notionally where they're going to show up. Do so. You want to, you know, I'm a lot more interested in you telling me how you can use the assets you have today. So um, from uh, from inside the Beltway to outside the Beltway, there is this talk about a new so, some sort of South China Sea task force. What is that all about? So reporting came out this week that the Pentagon is considering establishing a permanent naval task force in the Pacific uh, as a counter to China's growing military might. Um, there were a number of people that, uh, or a number of unnamed sources that showed up first in a Politico story, and then uh, there was some follow-on reporting. According to the unnamed sources, the plan would uh, also involve creating a named military operation for the Pacific, which would, you know, which is kind of inside baseball, but that allows the Defense Secretary to ask for uh, OCO or additional money um, to uh, to resource the problem if things um, you know suddenly get worse or if there's a an emergent need. The the administration was quick to say that the uh, the initiatives were not yet finalized, um, but that it you know allowed uh, the President Biden to continue to talk tough. Um, and I'm sure that you know this was leaked out, timed with the uh, the meeting with uh, NATO leaders uh, in, in Europe as as Biden met, uh, you know, first with the G7 and, and then with NATO. Um, apparently, the discussions grew out of the work by the Pentagon's China Task Force, um, which began uh, their uh, study uh, back in March. It was led by um, Pacific journeyman and uh, big thinker Eli Ratner. Um, who is a, a, a DOD uh, nominee. He's uh, no, uh, nommed to uh, lead the Indo-Pacific uh, office at the Pentagon, but before he was officially nominated, he and a small group put together uh, ideas on how to deal with China better, and apparently this was something that came out of it. So, Chris, your thoughts. Does this work? Does it not work? I have my own concerns, but where, where's your head on this? I think, well, first, you know, if it's a, if it's a U.S. thing, uh, we don't need a new task force to patrol the South China Sea. We have a, the U.S. 7th Fleet, which has been based in Japan for, um, gosh darn, just a few decades now. I mean, they live out there. They routinely patrol the South China Sea. Both of their main op operating groups, the Reagan Group and the America Group, as we said, are in the South China Sea today. Um, we don't need anything particular to go out there. Um, it it's, sounds like, you know, the first fleet idea, which the 
was also floated, which seems redundant. Um, there, there are by and by the way, there aren't any more ships to allocate to it. You'd just be re re rebranding some existing things. On the other hand, if it's an international effort, that that is a bit different. But again, what is the construct? So we have things like in the uh, in NATO in Europe, there are standing naval forces. Um, there's anti-submarine frigate destroyer kind of group. There's mine warfare groups that um, operate together and constant, pretty much constantly. And they're always demonstrating interoperability and cooperation and intent. Um, and they, maybe that's a sort of a construct. There are the central command um, task forces operating out of fifth fleet, which are focused units that, that deal with anti-piracy and anti-smuggling um, out there. But even then, that's, um, those are, uh, the, those have relatively finite and probably overplayed goals. Um, what would a Chinese group, I mean, nobody in the Pacific wants to overtly challenge China. Maybe the only ones are, uh, you know, I mean, J Japan, we can pretty much yes. Um, Taiwan is always iffy in terms of partnering with Taiwan. Um, there's Korea and the Koreans and the Japanese don't particularly like each other. It's, it's a lot of bilateral relationships. One, U.S. with Korea, U.S. Philippines, U.S. Malaysia, U.S. Vietnam, and so forth. There's no, Viet, there's no NATO construct, and there's no multinational task force like exists in Central Command. One thing to look for is when the British carrier Queen Elizabeth strike group gets out to the Pacific here in a few weeks. There are going to be a number of exercises in a number of different countries, the ships from different navies out in that region are going to be operating with, with uh, Queen Elizabeth, including ours. And it might be interesting to see how that plays out. These international cooperative task forces definitely get under the skin of the Chinese. The uh, recent uh, deployment by the French uh, of a French submarine and an amphibious ship with a frigate clearly, clearly annoyed the Chinese who ran any number of stories about why they don't need to be there and they're just interfering and everything they did. It's like, you, you can go home now. I mean, it really, they could have chose to just simply ignore it, but they didn't. It got under their skin. The Queen Elizabeth is going to do the same thing. So this the, the, displaying an international effort to stand up to China may be a worthwhile effort. I, I worry that it lacks the legal oomph that it would need. So I agree with you that a uh, an international task force would be ideal. And I mean, I certainly am all for getting underneath the skin of the uh, of the Chinese. I'm just not sure that you have that international mandate to to do that. I'd much rather see um, an international task force go after uh, Chinese illegal fishing uh, off the coast of yeah. West and East Africa, as well as, uh, you know, off the coast of Pacific Islands. At least they could uh, point to uh, UN conventions and other international law and norms as a mandate to do that. I think it would still um, get underneath the skin of the Chinese, but it would be under the auspices of, uh, of something legal instead of just kind of ratcheting up the tensions, um, because that's also my concern is that you force the Chinese to do something in response to this, right? You put this task force out there. If it doesn't have a clear legal mandate, now what do the Chinese do? 
Um, yep. And it be, you play into the international for domestic purposes that G and the Politburo has been have been working for years. I'm certainly not a Chinese expert or a China expert, and there are many people that are writing on this, but if this was an idea to just float it, to get it out there, okay, fine. But I think this needs some refining before uh, it goes forward. I think you're on the money with that one. Yes, sir. Now hear this. Uh Now hear this. Oh, dear. I guess it's time for a squawk box. That's right. That point in the show where somebody with something to say is going to do some squawking about it. Chris, it's you're up this week. Thanks, Chris. Well, this week, when asked a ridiculous question about his reading list, yes, his reading list, Chief of Naval Operations Mike Gilday pushed back hard on Representative Jim Banks of Indiana and others who were trying to score quick political points on the issue of race and what should and shouldn't be discussed in American classrooms or on the mess decks around the fleet. We saw the CNO get animated and passionate about his service and his sailors as members of Congress chose to pursue headline grabs and social media campaign fodder instead of serious maritime dialogue. It was a display of emotion and forthrightness rarely seen in public from Gilday. Bottle that passion, CNO. Bottle that passion. Bottle it and pass it out to the next all-flag officer meeting. Take that passion and use it the next time you speak about why America needs a strong and capable Navy. Use it at your next morning meeting as you tell your staff and fellow flag officers it's time to get serious about planning for competition with Russia and China. Let's use the passion and if needed anger to force coherent thinking to raise the debate and show folks in and outside of the beltway that your service does indeed have its act together and is ready for the serious discussions and challenges, budget and operational that lie ahead. Yes, CNO, you were correct when you declared during the hearings, we are not weak. You are absolutely right, Chris. I couldn't agree more. And I thought the CNO looked pretty good standing up there, pretty forthright. Good good on you, CNO. So that does it for this week's Cavalry Ships podcast. Uh, be sure and follow us during the week at Cavalry Ships on Twitter. And Chris, where else can we tune into this? So uh, we're in episode two. Uh, the places continue to grow. The podcast is available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as uh, on the Defense and Aerospace uh, website, defarrowreport.com. A special thank you to Vago Maradian for, for his support. Uh, and so make sure that in addition to listening from the web, that you start to uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your, uh, your favorite podcasts. Okay. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.